From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I think the real weakness of liberals a lot of time is bending over backwards to try to understand people who really do mean harm. But I do understand why people distrust that language, because as you point out, a lot of times the religious communities that embrace this language are in a position of power and are often the oppressors themselves. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Adam Kotzko. He's on the faculty of the Scheimer Great Book School at North Central College, where he teaches widely in the humanities and social sciences. His research focuses on political theology, continental philosophy, and the history of Christian thought. He's the author, most recently, of Neoliberalism's Demons, which argues that the contemporary social economic order functions on the basis of a logic of moral entrapment that echoes the theological concept of demonization. He's also the author of Agamben's Philosophical Trajectory, a comprehensive study of the Italian philosopher emphasizing how his thought has evolved in response to political events. Today, we're going to be talking about another one of Adam Kotzko's books called The Prince of This World. Adam Kotzko, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks for having me. I wanted to speak to you about this book, The Prince of This World, for many reasons, but in one sense because... Interestingly, another guest that I've had on the program, David Dark, and others in what we might call left Twitter, or the kind of left commentary sphere of the internet, have begun to use very interesting language with regard to the current president of the United States and those who are allied with the current president of the United States. They've begun to use the language of antichrist. And I was interested in your book because it is, in some ways, a look at the concept of the devil in the Western Christian tradition. And I would very much like to dig into this idea with, as a kind of background, this political notion or this resurgent political notion of Antichrist. But before we get into that, let me invite you, first of all, to talk a little bit about your thought behind this book, The Prince of This World. One thing that you say early on in the book and that is there in the entirety of the argument is a Christian concept called the problem of evil or a problematic in the Christian thought process called the problem of evil. And I think that's a good place to start. When we use this phrase, the problem of evil, what are we talking about? Basically, um, in the most familiar terms, it's the question of uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Or uh, sometimes I like to reverse it. This seems to be what concerns people more. Why do good things happen to bad people? And it's basically a way of getting at the apparent contradiction between three theological claims. On the one hand, Christians, traditional Christians at least, believe that God is all good and all powerful. And it seems if you put those two things together, it should only result in good things. And yet we know that's not the case, that evil and injustice happens. And so when theologians talk about the problem of evil, they're trying to square those three claims and try to make them fit in a way that they don't intuitively fit. And I think that this is useful for my project of connecting theology to politics because really the problem of evil is asking about the legitimacy of God. We don't want to think that we serve God and worship him simply out of fear or just because he happens to be the strongest guy in town or something like that. We want to think that God deserves to be God, that God actually is worthy of worship and worthy of being obeyed and worthy of being listened to. And the problem of evil reflects this suspicion that maybe he's not, that we need to do some work to make sure to square our beliefs about God with our experience. 
in the process of trying to get at this question of the problem of evil and these three aspects of it that you've just said that Christianity is attempting, for better or worse, to keep in balance, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people if God is all-powerful and all-just? One of the moves that you make in The Prince of This World is you suggest that a way that the Christian tradition has historically solved this problem is to create a narrative around this character of the devil and to make the devil more responsible for evil in some way than God would be. And first of all, when I say it in that very simplified fashion, have I got it right or did I get something wrong that needs to be corrected? Yeah, it's one of these typical theological moves that generates even more problems than it's supposed to solve. You're right that this is the way that they put it, that actually uh, the devil is to blame for tempting Adam and Eve, for instance, and for rebelling against God. But then you ask, where did the devil come from? Why would God allow this to go on? It opens up a, a huge can of worms. And I think that one repeated pattern that the story about the devil kind of fits into as well is that when theologians are trying to solve the problem of evil, they don't want to get rid of the idea that God is all-powerful. They don't want to get rid of the idea that God is all-good. And so they actually focus on trying to discredit the one thing that we know about for sure, which is that evil and suffering really do happen. And they try to explain it away as though it's not really evil, that it's God's long-term plan, for instance. It's for our greater good. It's a punishment for the evil things that we've done. It's balancing the scales. Like when the government punishes someone, it's not thought of as having the same moral value as when somebody like just injures another private individual. And so when they posit that there is this other force out there, the devil, that is making us do all these bad things or that is causing all these evil results to come into effect, there is inevitably a counter move that comes up where they say, wait, God created the devil because he created everything. God must have allowed the devil to rebel for some greater purpose. And in a certain way, the devil must be on God's team, if only indirectly. That the devil is serving God, even if unwillingly, by tempting us and testing us and punishing us, even though from his own malicious motives, he's still following God's will in some fashion. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Adam Kotzko. We're talking about his recent book, The Prince of This World, which looks at the long history of the devil in the Christian tradition and in Western philosophy. I want to build on what you just said, because this whole notion that somehow the devil is operating within God's purview, that brings us to books in the Bible like the book of Job. And you linger on the book of Job at one point in your book, The Prince of This World, looking at the dynamic that occurs between the devil as a character and God as a character. But for listeners that may be unfamiliar with that text or haven't read it in a while, refresh us briefly on what that dynamic is. Yeah, the book of Job was really fascinating for my project because it's one of the few places in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament where the devil seems to appear clearly as a character. There's this entity called Satan, the Satan, who comes on the scene and God basically asks him, how are you doing? What have you been up to? And the Satan says, I've been wandering around, you know how it is. And then God says, by the way, have you seen my servant Job? He's the most righteous person in the world. I love him. He's wonderful. And this figure who's known as the Satan or the tempter or the uh, opponent or something like that, he says, why shouldn't he serve you? Because you give him everything he needs. If you turned against him, if you stopped giving him all this great stuff, then of course he would curse your name. And what's interesting about this is, first of all, that this figure that we would associate with the devil appears to be just part of God's regular entourage. He just wanders onto the scene and God doesn't say, who are you? What are you doing here? Guards, get him. That he's expected and they have kind of a casual conversation. And that his first move is actually to introduce an element of doubt into God himself. Does Job really love me like I think he does? And so God actually gives this devil-like figure permission to destroy all of Job's property and family, and Job remains faithful. Then he attacks Job's health as well. 
and Job still remains faithful. And what follows this setup is a long dialogue where Job's friends say, since you suffered, you must have done something wrong, which is a pretty familiar rhetoric that I think we all hear pretty much every day, honestly. And Job insists, no, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. I didn't do anything wrong. God has done this to me for no reason. And finally, God answers in a way that people don't generally find satisfactory. But the one thing he doesn't say, and the one thing that none of the friends say, or Job either, is that it must have been an evil spirit who did this. They say that God did it, and God agrees that God did it. So in this first appearance of something that is associated with the devil, using the name Satan, he is on God's team. And even though it's his idea, he's operating within God's permission, specifically to torment somebody for being good. It's a very bizarre and disturbing story, and I'm very impressed with the people who had the integrity to include it in the Bible. One of the things that stands out to me in what you just said is that we oftentimes read the book of Job as a story of the temptation of Job to doubt God. But what I heard you saying early in your answer was that one of the accomplishments that the Satan achieves in this conversation with God is getting God to doubt God. Now, did I hear that correctly, or would you say that in a different way? Oh, no, that's, that's exactly right. So if we're dealing with this, then one of the things that strikes me is that we're not really looking at a book of the Bible that is presenting God as a theological character, but it's more like God is being presented as a literary character, one that has passions that can be pushed in one direction or another, or can have doubts. These are not the traditional theological categories. And I'm wondering, as you go back and look at the book of Job, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I think it's, you're right that it's very interesting that God appears as more of a literary character. And he's very relatable at the beginning. We've all been insecure about whether somebody really, really loves us or just is playing acting or is just like getting benefits from us. But at the end, God comes across as extremely unattractive. Job keeps insisting that he wants to talk to God and that he needs to plead his case before God himself. And God finally does come on the scene And he basically has this huge kind of rambling, arrogant, over-the-top speech that basically amounts to, shut up, I'm God. My favorite line from Job is, God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Which is, I guess, a good point, but also not really relevant to the, (laughs) the, the topic at hand. But after this long speech where he basically cows Job into submission, he seems to tacitly admit that Job was right. And he even requires the three friends who have been mouthing very pious, common theological tropes that we hear every day again. And he makes them offer a sacrifice of atonement because they have spoken wrongly of God, while Job, with his constant accusations, has spoken rightly. It's just a really brilliant kind of internal critique of the biblical tradition, because it seems like the bulk of the books of the Hebrew Bible want to say that good things happen to good people, and if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. That's how it's supposed to work, and Job, the book of Job, admits that's not really the case. One more question about Job. When we think about sort of Western story structure. And I recognize that Job doesn't fall into the canon of Western story structure. It was written far long before we actually had these kind of structures in place. But in Western story structure, we can oftentimes talk about a protagonist, the hero of a story, an antagonist, the villain of a story, and then neutral characters that can be working for the protagonist or the antagonist through the development of the narrative. And I'm wondering, as you go back and look at the book of Job, It might be easy to say that Job is the protagonist and Satan, the Satan, is an antagonist. But I'm wondering what role you think God plays structurally in the book of Job. Is God a neutral character or is God an antagonist to Job? I think that God is an antagonist, but weirdly like a beloved antagonist. Job does constantly say, God is doing this to me for no reason, but he never says, and therefore I hate God, or therefore I turn away from God, or I reject God. He constantly has this hope that God will vindicate him. And I think that the friends who are constantly telling him, you must have sinned, you must have sinned, that they represent almost a satanic force in Job's life, 
to try to tempt him to doubt himself and to doubt his integrity, just as the Satan figure had successfully tempted God to doubt Job and to doubt Job's integrity. And what's interesting to me is that Job winds up coming out better in this test than God does, that Job manages to maintain his integrity and maintain his consistency much better than God, even though Job is suffering in ways that God never will, that he's facing a much more difficult situation than God does, and yet he acquits himself better. And I think that the conclusion of the story where God restores all of Job's possessions and everything like that is a tacit admission that Job actually came out better in this exchange, even than God. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Adam Kotzko. He's on the faculty of the Scheimer Great Book School at North Central College, where he teaches widely in the humanities and social sciences. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Prince of This World. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these kinds of conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're speaking with Adam Kotzko. He's on the faculty of the Scheimer Great Books School at North Central College, where he teaches widely in the humanities and social sciences. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Prince of This World, which is looking at the long history of the devil in Christian and Western philosophical traditions. Early on in your book, The Prince of This World, you talk about the methodology of the book, and you say this is going to be not just a history of the devil and the idea of the devil, but a genealogy of the idea of the devil. And for listeners that may not have encountered that technical term before, I'm wondering if you can tell us briefly what it means to say that you're going to do a genealogy of something. I think that the main difference between a genealogy and a kind of straightforward intellectual history is that a genealogy focuses more on patterns of thought and especially like repeated conflicts that come up within an intellectual tradition, whereas a regular intellectual history would say, okay, let's look at the Hebrew Bible. There is the serpent in the garden there is the Satan figure from Job. Those seem to be the earliest instances where we see something like the devil. And then they would take inventory from there. In this literature from the second century before Christ, there's an explosion of more instances of the figure of the devil. And then in the Gospels, he plays the X, Y, or Z role and moving on from there, just very literally tracing where this figure shows up. And what a genealogy is after is to try to determine why that figure came about, what pressures were applied to these people that made the answer that's represented by the devil seem attractive or convincing. And in an investigation like that, the starting point might be apparently very different from the devil or very or unrelated to the devil initially and then uh, wind up by an unexpected path arriving at the devil. And I think that's the, the basic shape of my first chapter, where I try to trace where the devil came from out of the Hebrew biblical tradition. And I don't start with the serpent in the garden or with the, the Satan and Job. I actually start with Pharaoh from Exodus 
and move forward from there. And only at the very end of the chapter does something like the devil come on the scene. And that's the genealogy of the devil in the sense of these are the forces and the pressures and the conflicts that gave birth to this, the concept of the devil, rather than just taking inventory of, okay, here we see him in Genesis, we see him in Job, we see him in Matthew, etc. Let me see if I have this correct. So, if you will, a more literalist, a more straightforward reading of the biblical text might offer a reading that would say, listen, the devil is real, the devil is a spiritual force, and the Bible gives us accountings of the actions and the inclinations of the devil as our enemy. Like that would be a literal straightforward reading that says, no, there's a, a devil out there, and the, and the devil is part of God's story, and because the Bible is God's story, the devil plays a role in the Bible and is described accurately in the Bible. Literal, straightforward reading. If I'm hearing you correctly, a genealogical reading would say instead, there were forces, political forces, social forces around the people that wrote these texts that were shaping their reality that they couldn't control but to whom they were beholden. And they used descriptions like the devil to try and describe actual historical personages like Pharaoh in ancient Egypt. They couldn't necessarily use straightforward language, but instead, and this is going to be my word, not yours, they use a kind of code language to describe this. Now, as I'm talking about that as a genealogical reading and that kind of genealogical unpacking of the world around the text that you were talking about, am I on the right track or would you say it in a different way? Yeah, I would say, first of all, it's helpful that you distinguished my reading from a, a theological reading. I'm not trying to to tell people what the devil is really or something like that in a in the sense of what they should believe about the devil. My attempt is to give a history of the devil in a certain way. And so the kind of literalist approach that you talk about, that's obviously not what I'm after. But I don't want to do this kind of coded language thing either. Because I think that a lot of the, the kind of forces or tensions or contradictions that people are dealing with are unconscious, that they're not saying, ah, yes, Pharaoh's causing us trouble, but I'm going to use this code word of the devil for him. The complication here, though, is that in a lot of apocalyptic texts, like uh, the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel, it is clear that these spiritual figures do map onto political reality. So like in the book of Daniel, for instance, the uh, ultimate enemy of God is this weird figure called the little horn. And that refers to a particular king that ruled over the land of Palestine named Antiochus, who persecuted the Jews severely. And they talked about him using this kind of overblown spiritual language that he's a demonic force. And similarly, in the book of Revelation, they use this language relating to the beast and stuff. Many scholars agree that this refers to uh, Nero, who was one of the Roman emperors. So yes, there is a code aspect in some of this literature. But what I'm asking is, where did this impulse to demonize come from initially? Why was this type of imagery attractive as a code to talk about these particular figures? And what I conclude in the book is that the position of Job's friends, the view that God ultimately rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked, even if it takes a long time for it to work out that way, and even if there's apparent setbacks, and even if we seem to be suffering unjustly for a short time, that in situations of extreme persecution, and in particular situations where they are being persecuted for following God's law. This is what Antiochus did, is he wanted to eradicate Judaism as a religion, and so he was torturing and murdering people for following the Torah. And in the mind of the pious Jew of this, this time, that is simply not how it is, it, it's supposed to work. Being punished for being righteous is a short circuit. And so in response to this unfathomable, kind of incomprehensible situation, they develop this hyperbolic language that kind of takes their local enemy and makes him into God's ultimate enemy. And what that does is that it puts him back within God's 
plan that God is going to defeat him, that God always needed to defeat him for some reason, that God's going to restore us ultimately through the resurrection of the dead, and that it takes this kind of whole cosmological, spiritual, apocalyptic imagination to reconcile themselves with this irreconcilable fact that they're being punished for being righteous, which just breaks your brain as well as your heart. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Adam Kotzko. He's on the faculty of the Scheimer Great Book School at North Central College, where he teaches widely in the humanities and social sciences. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Prince of This World, which offers a genealogical history of the character of the devil in the Christian and Western philosophical traditions. I want to continue with this line of thought because one of the things that you've begun to unearth in our conversation is the fact that there are genuine power struggles both within the text of the Bible but also surrounding the peoples that wrote the Bible. And there are periods where those who are holding on to the God message or the centrality of this monotheistic narrative, they have been in the role of the oppressed, and there are other times when we can see them in the role of the oppressor. And so I want to introduce now these two concepts into our conversation of oppressed and oppressor, and I wonder if you could help us to start to understand how these dynamics begin to play out in the way that we should be thinking about and reading the text of the Bible around this narrative of the devil. Yes, as I was saying just now, the Jewish community at the time that they developed apocalyptic thought, they were an extremely persecuted group under Antiochus and undergoing suffering that I think that nobody could possibly justify this happening to anybody. They're simply following their cultural traditions that don't harm anybody, and this person just has a vendetta against them and thinks that their habits are wrong and gross and that they need to stop and just is willing to do anything to make them stop. This is just sheer, unmotivated, evil-seeming. And I think that in that situation, this type of apocalyptic rhetoric and this type of uh, demonic rhetoric is actually appropriate. I think that what Antiochus was doing back in those days was inexcusable and demonic, just as I think that when our mutual friend David Dark calls our current president an antichrist, that I think that is justified, that I think that he is an evil figure and that we need to become more comfortable with naming that evil in this world. I think the real weakness of liberals a lot of time is bending over backwards to try to understand people who really do mean harm. But I do understand why people distrust that language, because as you point out, a lot of times the religious communities that embrace this language are in a position of power and are often the oppressors themselves. And one of the tragic ironies that I try to document in my book is that this language of apocalyptic thinking and this language of the devil that was such a powerful tool for persecuted communities that were trying to keep themselves together and make sense of their place in this world, that once we turn the corner and they're back in an advantageous position, suddenly becomes this hugely dangerous and destructive weapon to use against the oppressed. I actually opened my book with the testimony of Darren Wilson, who is the police officer who shot Michael Brown in Ferguson. And he testifies that he is afraid of Michael Brown, that this is a very threatening figure, and at one point says, it looks like a demon. And when I read that, as I was working on this book, it was just absolutely stopped short. I was just like, you are kidding me. That this person that you murdered in cold blood, you think that he is a threatening demon. When really, if anything, you represent the demonic force of just sheer malevolence violently lashing out at somebody for no reason. And I think that in that encounter, in the very fact that phrase could occur to him, I think my book is encapsulated, that this language is so powerful, but also so dangerous. I so appreciate that answer. And you touched on a couple things that I want to go a little bit more deeply on. At one point, you mentioned the liberal approach to these sorts of questions. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase what I would take the liberal approach to be. Evil is not really a force 
there are differences of opinion. And as the differences of opinion clash, they lead to a greater ascendancy towards the good. Like that, that's a classic liberal project, right? If we can just keep talking, we'll eventually get to a better way of doing things together. The Satan tradition, the devil tradition, seems to take a different tack. It seems to say evil has a location. It is personified. It has an intention. And its intention is political in that it wants to establish a world that suits its ends and its needs. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can think with me a little bit about the tension between this kind of liberal approach to eventually we'll all be able to get along and this idea of placing, personifying, locating evil in a particular persona or in a particular location. Yeah, I think that this is what the way you describe it is very accurate and, and fits with what I think is, is naive about the liberal view that if we just keep talking, eventually we're going to come to some type of workable compromise and that there's a kind of desire to bend over backwards to understand people and view them as friends when they really are enemies. What I take away from the apocalyptic and more devil-oriented tradition is the idea that there really are enemies in this world. There really are people who want incompatible things that are not, that are not compatible with our flourishing and with human flourishing, that they want their own advantage um, over others, and there's no convincing them. They don't want it because they're stupid. They don't want it because they misunderstand. They want something bad because they think it's good for them. And maybe w within their own perspective, they're even right. But all we can do is fight them and prevent them from achieving that. It seems like the liberal position is never willing to take that step of, okay, we need to fight until this is over because we just can't have this. One of the figures that you return to again and again in your book, The Prince of This World, is the philosopher Carl Schmitt, I guess the political theologian Carl Schmitt, and he writes that all significant concepts of the modern theory of the state are secularized theological concepts. And as we're talking about this kind of distinction between liberalism and the idea of a kind of more apocalyptic or devil-oriented tradition, the, the notion that somehow what we're looking at in our present state of affairs in the politics in the United States is some kind of denatured theology. I'd love for my listeners to understand a little bit more what you think Schmidt means by that. Well, Schmidt thinks that basically in any given historical era, there's going to be a tendency for the theological convictions and the political convictions to map onto each other. And from a secular point of view, this is a heretical view, because secularism presupposes that theology is its own thing over here, it's your own private piety, and politics is this other thing over here. And so we get a lot of people who object to the religious right, for instance, not directly based on their destructive policies and preferences, but because it's a category error, because they're using religion in the political realm in a way that shouldn't happen. And Schmidt says that view is itself a theological position about what counts as a valid religion and a re valid religious expression. And really, theology and politics always go together. And he thinks that basically the nation state and its attempt to preserve itself through emergency circumstances, through war, to preserve itself against uh, civil war or insurrection, that this kind of maps onto certain apocalyptic apocalyptic concepts, whereas a more liberal view seems to fit with a more pantheistic theology, where there's God in everything, we just need to find it, we just need, if, we're, if we don't see God and the good in this, we need to just keep working harder because it's, we're going to find it eventually. And he has a strong preference for the apocalyptic view. He thinks that the pantheistic view is wrong and naive and theologically wrong. He's a devout Roman Catholic as well. But I have found his concepts to be really fruitful in cutting through a lot of the stereotypes that prevent us from directly talking about what we need to talk about, which is not that the religious right are illegitimately using religion for political ends, but that the ends that they're following, that they're pursuing, are bad and harmful and destructive to people, and we need to stop them from doing that. Then in this view then, in Schmidt's view, where the political and the theological sort of map across one another, in that context, when we talk about a figure like Satan, like the devil, what role politically is the devil playing for us in our current 
civic arrangements? Well, I think it depends on which direction you're coming from. In James Cone's book, God of the Oppressed, he talks a bit about the devil. And at a certain point, he says the devil and the demonic is embodied in the United States government and its military apparatus in the administration of Gerald Ford. I always found that kind of funny since Ford is viewed as a buffoonish character, but really he's a, char- he's a person who was even elevated with no democratic mandate to be in charge of all this. And that the Pentagon or the president or something like that, that that represents the force of evil in the world, the force of oppression in the world from the standpoint of the black community that is constantly ground down and denigrated by the mainstream of American society and by law enforcement and by the government. But if you're coming at it from the side of the oppressor, it comes out like what Darren Wilson, the police officer, said, that actually somebody like James Cohen turns out to be the demon, that the person who basically complains about being oppressed is the true oppressor. And this is where I think that the kind of, that Christian politics can become so almost uniquely toxic is this tendency to need to find a devil character and to envision yourself, regardless of your real position in society and your real level of power, to envision yourself as always being the persecuted one. And that licenses all kinds of destructive action. There's no limit to what you can do against the devil, right? And This is, again, where I see the devil image as just such a powerfully double-edged sword because I am right there with James Cone when he says that the U.S. is the evil empire and that this represents the demonic force in this world. But then that very same rhetoric can be deployed against the very community that, that Cone is advocating for and is a part of with seemingly much greater effect as well. And that's a very difficult thing to grapple with. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Adam Kotzko. He's on the faculty of the Scheimer Great Book School at North Central College, where he teaches widely in the humanities and social sciences. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Prince of This World. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of talks, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're speaking with Adam Kotzko. He's on the faculty of the Scheimer Great Book School at North Central College, where he teaches widely in the humanities and social sciences. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Prince of This World, which presents a genealogical history of the character of the devil, Satan, in Christian and Western philosophical traditions. So, towards the conclusion of your book, The Prince of This World, you begin to dig deep into this political question that we've been talking about in the last segment of the show. And you begin to say, what would it look like if we take Schmidt seriously about the overlap of theology and and politics? And what would it look like if we were to truly try and reimagine and reinvigorate our political landscape in a Christian manner? And you say that's a very dangerous sort of prospect to bring, because if we were to do it with Christianity as it presently exists, 
we would create a monstrosity. We would create, and I, I don't know your exact phrase, but basically we would create a society where more people were excluded and there would be more hell on earth, not less. And those are my words, not yours, but that's the spirit that I got from that idea. And I'm wondering, first of all, if you could explain why, if we just took the Christianity that we're currently getting in American churches on Sunday mornings, if we were to make that a more blown up political project, why that would be such a bad idea. I think that, first of all, if we did liberal Christianity as I've experienced it, it would simply be redundant. It would just be what Democrats are already doing, which doesn't seem to be very effective as far as I can tell. But the real danger, of course, is the right-wing conservative Christians. They seem to take the position of Job's friends and take it further. It's not if you're suffering, then you must have done something wrong. It's that not enough people are suffering, that the danger is that too many people are getting good things, too many people are being accepted when they shouldn't be. It's ominous the way that religious freedom is being used to give people license to exclude and denigrate others, to refuse to treat them as they would treat anybody else on the basis of these supposedly sacred religious rights, which always seem to revolve around discriminating against somebody or viewing them as evil or wrong. As though it's an, an imposition on me to treat a gay person as a fellow human being rather than as some type of demonic force in the world. And so I think that it's pretty clear that if they got their way, things would be pretty ugly. But more than that, I already jokingly said that liberal Christians would overlap with what's already happening. But the broader argument of what I'm saying is that in a sense, modern society already is Christian in its structure, that even secular society is already Christian in its structure because it attempts to embody the certain type of moral order that reflects Christian ideas of free will, moral desert, moral responsibility, and susceptibility to punishment, even if it does so in a secularized way. And, and so if we were then to take seriously this mapping of the theological and the political in a way that would actually be useful to society, and if I take then your statement that our society as we're experiencing it is already structurally Christian, then a natural follow-on is what would have to change in Christianity in order to actually bring about the kind of improved material conditions, the improved political conditions that many who are on the progressive side of the conversation would want to see. Yeah, in my conclusion, I it's the end of the book. One is running out of energy, obviously, and so these are only sketchy suggestions. But I don't have to make up everything from scratch. I've already mentioned James Cone, and there are many other kind of varieties of liberation theologies that aren't just an attempt to map social justice onto theology, but they match up with a certain type of community and a certain type of practice as well. In Latin America, for instance, the base communities, which were radically democratic, egalitarian communities centered around the study of scripture and an attempt to live the gospel, those were real. Those really happened, and those probably were better than what the surrounding mainstream church was doing. And they were violently repressed, too, which is a terrible thing, but I think it also shows us that they really were a threat to the governing order. They don't bother to repress something that isn't a threat. So I think that if we look to the history of liberation theologies and some of the movements that try to keep that alive today, I think that we can find good models that are actually functioning right now. And if we wanted to get a little more speculative, I point to one kind of minority tradition within Christianity that I associated with this early theologian, a 4th century theologian named Gregory of Nyssa, who has this account of how Jesus rescues us from the devil. For Gregory, the, the purpose of the crucifixion and resurrection is not to save us from our sins, but to save us from the devil. But then there's a further twist where he says, and Christ's saving action winds up saving the devil too that at the end of the day, Christ manages to redeem the devil. And subsequent theologians did not like that. They absolutely rejected that idea. It seemed to miss the entire point of having a devil. 
And so it was widely rejected after Gregory's time. But I think thinking through what it would really mean for the devil to be saved and to think of what steps are laid out in Gregory's symbolic or theological vision, how can we get to us, get ourselves to a point where we can forgive the devil, where we can actually reach this type of unity that the liberal naively believes already exists, but does not. But the liberal's not wrong to, to want it. So how do we get there? How do we think in terms of redeeming the devil and saving the devil? And I think that's a kind of theological provocation that on the one hand, it preserves the language of the devil, which I think is really valuable and essential, that if Christian theology in a progressive vein is going to be a major force in society and not just a wish list, not just a wistful reflection on how nice it would be if things were differently, they need to recognize that there really are enemies and that there really is evil in the world. But they also need to take the second step of, okay, what do we do with that? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Adam Kotzko. He's on the faculty of the Scheimer Great Book School at North Central College, where he teaches widely in the humanities and social sciences. We're talking today about his recent book, The Prince of This World, which presents a genealogical history of the concept of the devil in Christianity and Western philosophical traditions. The impulse that I have after the answer that you just gave is to want to have you now fully flesh out that answer into how we would reconfigure our approach to our faith in the sense that the devil could be redeemed and to really build on this Gregory of Nyssa idea. But I heard you say at the beginning of your answer that it was a tentative a sketch of an idea. And so I recognize that there's not a full-blown structure here, and I, I take that seriously. So let me ask a slightly different question. What I have observed, particularly amped up in maybe the last 18 months, but it's always been there under the surface, particularly since Obama came to office, President Obama came to office, is both a political and a theological attack on the kind of black liberation theology that you just referenced by talking about James Cone, but also critical race theory, attacks on Reverend Raphael Warnock, both politically and theologically down in Georgia. And so I'm curious what you think about the fact that currently both the theological structures on the right and the political structures on the right are both going after the same sort of stalking horse here, the sermons of Jeremiah Wright or the sermons of Raphael Warnock or the idea of James Cone that we shouldn't say God bless America, but we should say God damn America. When we see both a theological and a political array against this kind of idea, talk to me about the dynamic that you see going on there. Yes, when I see all those forces arrayed against like preachers, against Black thought, against the sheer assertion that Black lives matter, what a morally bankrupt position that you cannot simply accept the phrase Black lives matter without making it about yourself, without immediately correcting it to say all lives matter. I think that this is a real sign of the way that Black people are demonized in the conservative mind, because any type of self-assertion on the part of Black people is interpreted as a form of violence. I think that we see this in the dynamic of police shootings, the way that it's covered, that any action they take somehow justifies their death as though walking down the sidewalk is a death penalty offense or something all of a sudden. And I think that this kind of hyperbolic danger that the conservative mind sees in black self-assertion, on the one hand, it's obviously exaggerated and paranoid. I don't think that there actually are many black thinkers out there who want to turn the tables and oppress white people or something like that. If there are such people, they're very marginal and rejected by their own community for the most part. But I think that there's a, a really provocative vein of black thought right now called Afro-pessimism that kind of takes that reaction very literally and says, actually, white identity is predicated on the fact that we're demonized and that we're denigrated and that we're always lower and we're always susceptible to violence. And asserting our full humanity really does threaten that type of identity. And I would say that if that is the case, then white identity, as it's constituted 
in the U.S. especially, is a demonic force in this world. Not that everybody who we would identify as a white person based on their physical features is demonic or anything like that, but that the identity of whiteness, which is premised on the suffering of others, especially of blacks, is a a demonic and demonizing force in the world. And that maybe one way to think towards what would it mean to redeem the devil would be what would it mean to get free of this form of white identity? What would it mean to get past this? What would it mean if people could hear the phrase Black Lives Matter and not want to correct it and almost be bored by it? That would be the the best outcome, right? That it would be so commonsensical, you would almost wonder why they bothered to say it. Clearly, that's not the case in contemporary American society, though. Now, what I'm hearing in your answer, and I'm very much appreciative of the complexity here. So it's not simply a matter of ceasing to have the reflex. Like You're not saying that the white person who's in a position of privilege, if they simply cease to have the reflex when they hear Black Lives Matter to say all lives matter, that this will be solved. That it's not simply a matter of taking that category of relationships, but it's a matter of taking the entire structure of powers that are operative right now in our current political landscape and having them be reconfigured in a way where these oppressions are no longer possible. Now, am I hearing that right? Or is there some middle ground that I'm missing here? No, I think that's correct. I think it is important for personal relationships to train yourself not to be defensive about such critiques. And I think it's not actually that difficult to do if you actually want to do it. But I often, especially when talking to students about these types of issues, I think that people tend to give a little bit too much power to like the ideas that we have in our head, such that if we change the ideas in our head, the world would automatically change. But if some miracle came about that tomorrow morning, everybody woke up and they forgot about the idea of race. All racist ideas were gone. All concepts that there even were races were gone. But everything was materially the same. How long would it take them to reinvent racism as a way to explain how things are? The underlying structure of our society, like the physical structure, where people live, what they do, how they spend their lives, that is racist. And changing what's in your head does not change that. What I like about that answer is that not only points us back to Schmidt's notion that the theological and the political are mapping onto one another, but I'm also thinking about Louis Althusser when he says that the ideologies of our societies have a material form. And what I'm hearing you doing is just inverting that and saying, yeah, and the material forms of our society create ideologies. If we don't change the material conditions in which people are, are living and interacting, they will reinvent the problems that we're trying to solve by simply not talking about them anymore. And in your answer, I'm hearing you put the lie to the people who would say, if we simply stop talking about racism would no longer be a problem. Now, when I make that connection, does that feel to you like a legitimate connection or am I missing something? Right. Yeah, I think that's right. The viewpoint that you uh, talk about then, like the people who complain about racism become the problem because racism is talking about race and therefore they're injecting it. They're making everything about race. But it's the material reality that is creating racism, not necessarily always the, uh, the other way around. Like one very discouraging development in the Trump years is a kind of resurgence of race realism or like racial-based pseudoscience that claims that the racial categories that basically European conquerors used to justify slavery and colonialism turn out to be scientifically valid. And that we're missing out on something if we don't acknowledge these racial differences. How can people embrace such stupid and discredited ideas? It's because society is becoming more racist. There's a more racist president who's pursuing a more racist agenda. And when that occurs, ideas that kind of try to explain it and explain it away gain popularity. It's not a matter of disproving these people or like showing that they're wrong. It's a matter of creating a society that does not need racist apologetics like that. 
I want to note that we began the conversation talking about the concept of Satan, the concept of the devil, the notions in Christian theology about what to do with the problem of evil, and we're ending the conversation with very concrete ideas about how society needs to be materially reshaped in order to politically and racially have more human flourishing and equity. And I'm curious, is this the kind of outcome that you hoped would come when you wrote your book, The Prince of This World? Did you hope that it would lead to these kind of brass tacks, very concrete, very material conversations? Or were you hoping for a different sort of conversational outcome as a result of writing this book? No, I think this is exactly the kind of thing that I'm hoping for. I have done a lot more kind of genealogical work on theology, and I'm especially passionate about the the connection of theology and race. Recently, that's been a major area of my research for the last several years. And my goal isn't to like create the correct theology or to correct what people say in the pulpits or what people believe in their heads when they go to church or something like that. My goal is to help people see the way that these destructive patterns keep repeating themselves in a way that I hope will motivate them to try to think of, okay, yes, these ideas are destructive, but what are the material conditions that are generating them and reiterating them generation to generation? And I think that's the strength of the genealogical approach to the history of ideas, is that you're never just at the level of ideas. You're always saying, what is motivating these ideas? Where are they coming from? What political forces are making them seem plausible? And I think that's a much more powerful way of intervening, even within the sphere of ideas, than one that just limits itself to strictly ideas only. I'm wondering, as you've been working on this kind of project, where you're looking at the kind of deep and structural history and historicity around a character like the devil, I'm wondering if you have felt any sort of shift or change in your own spiritual life or your own spiritual perspective. I think the more I've studied the history of Christian thought and the more I've been invested in the study of religion, it hasn't been limited only to Christianity. I've also done intense studies in Judaism and, and Islam as well, including like learning original languages to read the texts and stuff like this. So it's not a casual affair for me. But the more that I've done this research and the more that I've invested in that, the more distant and the more alienated I have become from Christian communities as they exist currently, including well-meaning ones, progressive ones. And the more I've been hoping to find some kind of more radical transformation of Christianity than is currently on the table, and even perhaps coming up with something that would go beyond Christianity or no longer be recognizable as Christianity how that fits with my spiritual life. I guess I don't think of myself in those terms anymore, but I am just profoundly and powerfully invested in the importance of kind of getting to the bottom of this. And I suppose that my, my study and my, even my criticism of this tradition, perhaps that can count as my rational act of worship, as Paul once said. Adam Kotzko, I have to say, your book, The Prince of This World, it was dynamite. I learned so much from it. It is so well-written, so fully researched, and so visionary in its way of looking at this central through line, but being able to point us in a direction of a future that is yet to come. I was really impressed. I'm very grateful that you took the time to write the book, but I'm especially grateful that you took the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. That means a lot coming from you, so thank you. We've been speaking today with Adam Kotzko. He's on the faculty of the Scheimer Great Book School at North Central College, where he teaches widely in the humanities and social sciences. His research focuses on political theology, continental philosophy, and the history of Christian thought. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, The Prince of This World. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. 
Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.